Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is going to celebrate the impending 35th anniversary of the release of William Friedkin's last masterpiece, To Live and Die in L.A., which opened in theaters on November 1st, 1985. William Friedkin, of course, is the Oscar-winning director of the 1971 Best Picture winner The French Connection, his fifth movie in only four years, after Good Times, The Birthday Party, The Night They Raided Minsky's, and The Boys in the Band. After The French Connection's massive success, grossing more than $51.7 million on a $1.8 million budget, Friedkin made his career with his follow-up, 1973's The Exorcist, which grossed $193 million on a $12 million budget. Until 2017's It, The Exorcist, was the highest grossing R-rated horror movie of all time. And then his career kind of ran off the rails. 1977's Sorcerer was supposed to be a little $2.5 million remake of Clouseau's The Wages of Fear, which ended up becoming a massive $22 million epic Friedkin honestly thought would become his legacy, his apocalypse now, the one he'd be remembered by, even though he had already, by this point, made two inarguable masterpieces. Instead, critics were offended Friedkin even dared to remake a classic, and audiences were confused by the title, and were far more interested in a little movie called Star Wars. Sorcerer would gross less than $6 million. After the failure of Sorcerer, Friedkin went right back to work making the crime comedy drama The Brinks Job, 
with Peter Falk, Peter Boyle, Jenna Rollins, and Warren Oates. The reviews weren't much better than they were for Sorcerer, but audiences were a bit more receptive to it. It still wouldn't be profitable, though, grossing only $14.5 million against a $16.4 million budget. And then there was Cruising. Loosely based on a New York Times writer's novel about a serial killer stalking and killing gay men associated with the local leather bar scene of the late 1970s, Cruising featured Al Pacino as an ambitious New York City police officer who goes undercover in the gay bars in the meatpacking district in order to track down a killer. The film has a great cast, including a pre-Raiders Karen Allen, Powers Booth, James Remar, William Russ, Paul Sorvino, Joe Spinell, and Mike Starr. But the film was mired in controversy before it even started shooting. Protesters would dog the production every night they shot in New York City, believing the film would stigmatize their community. They would attempt to interfere with shooting by pointing mirrors from rooftops to ruin the lighting of scenes, and blew air horns and whistles and played loud music to the point that most of the live dialogue would need to be redubbed in post-production. One night, more than 1,000 protesters marched through the streets of the East Village, demanding the city withdraw their support of the film. The movie would feature Los Angeles punk band The Germs, who recorded six songs for the soundtrack, although only one song would make it into the final film. Graham Parker would also record two songs for Cruising, but neither would be used, showing up later on his 1980 album The Up Escalator. When Friedkin finished the movie and submitted it to the MPAA for a rating, the film ran two hours and 40 minutes and was slapped with an X rating. Friedkin claims he submitted the film 50 times before he finally got an R rating, but not after 40 minutes of footage had been removed almost exclusively scenes of, according to the director, the most graphic homosexuality happening in the clubs while Pacino's undercover cop watches. The $11 million film would get released into theaters on February 8, 1980, and despite the controversy, or perhaps because of it, the film would end up grossing just a few hundred thousand dollars under $20 million. Not exactly profitable, but far better than his previous two films. Friedkin's next, Deal of the Century, had all the right pieces to becoming a successful film. Chevy Chase was one of the biggest comedic actors on the planet. Sigourney Weaver was becoming a star thanks to Alien, An Eyewitness, and Year of Living Dangerously. Gregory Hines was also becoming a star thanks to Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1 and Wolfen. The screenplay was written by Paul Brickman, who had just written and directed Risky Business. But maybe a comedy about a small arms dealer who winds up negotiating the sale of an experimental spy plane to a Central American nation's dictator wasn't going to go over so well in Ronald Reagan's America. Well, maybe it could have, had the comedy been funny, but it wasn't and the $10 million film would barely make its budget back when it was released in October 1983, let alone covering costs of prints and advertising. 
After four strikeouts in a row, William Friedkin needed a hit. While he was working on Deal of the Century, Friedkin was given a manuscript copy of Secret Service agent Gerald Petovich's upcoming novel, To Live and Die in L.A. Friedkin, drawn to the story of Secret Service agents, which had not been to that point been portrayed on screen very often, saw the potential for a movie immediately and worked with SLM, the production company behind Diner, Poltergeist, Romancing the Stone, and Cocoon, to pay Petovich $150,000 for an option to the novel before it was even published. Friedkin himself would kick in $15,000 of his own money to the option as a sign of good faith. After deal was locked, Friedkin and Petovich went right to work on writing the screenplay about a fearless secret service agent who will stop at nothing to bring down the counterfeiter who killed his partner. Whether it was because he was only going to get about $6 million to make the movie, or that he wanted to lend an air of authenticity to the production, Friedkin, who originally was considering Jeff Bridges, Harrison Ford, and Richard Gere in the lead, decided to forego movie stars altogether. For the lead role of Secret Service agent Richard Chance, Friedkin hired Chicago-based stage actor William L. Peterson, who was suggested by fellow Chicago-based stage actor Gary Sinise, and whose only screen role before this was a small part in Michael Mann's 1981 thriller Heist. After only half a page into the screen test, Peterson encouraged Friedkin to hire a friend and fellow Chicago stage actor John Pankow to play his partner Vukovic. Pankow would hop on a plane from Chicago to New York to meet Friedkin the night Peterson was hired for the lead role. And Friedkin would hire Pankow just after meeting him and running one scene in Peterson's hotel room. For the role of Eric Masters, the enigmatic artist who also does some counterfeiting work on the side, Friedkin hired New York City-based actor Willem Dafoe, who had a memorable supporting role in Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. Other roles would be filled by a number of up-and-coming actors, including Dwyer Brown, Darlan Flugel, Deborah Feuer, who at the time was also Mrs. Mickey Rourke, and John Turturro, as well as screen veterans Steve James and Dean Stockwell. Friedkin would also hire friend and fil fellow filmmaker Robert Downey, who did not yet need to differentiate himself from his namesake son, for a rare acting role. Before production began around Los Angeles, on November 26, 1984, Defoe would spend time with German modern expressionist artist Rainer Fettig, who would paint the works that represented Defoe's character's work, studying how the painter worked so he could use it in his work in the film. The painting that Masters burns at the start of the movie? That was a real painting Fetting had made just for that scene, which, had it not been destroyed, could have been worth over $50,000 today. To keep costs on the production as low as possible, Friedkin used a lot of non-union members behind the scenes, including cinematographer Robbie Mueller and his entire crew. Every scene would be shot in a real location, and he would often only do one or two takes of a scene. Sometimes, he'd tell the actors that they were going to rehearse a scene 
and then actually shoot it and decide if that take was good enough and then move on to the next setup or shot. And he'd also let his actors play out scenes and improvise not only lines, but their own blocking. Mueller would regularly have trouble trying to keep his actors in frame. If they're not in the frame, they're not in the movie. That's their problem, Friedkin would tell his flustered DP. Another scene that would give the production trouble is when Peterson and Pankow are chasing Totoro through LAX's moving sidewalks. While allowing the production to shoot within the terminals, LAX forbade Peterson from running along the top of the escalator dividers, as was written in the script, feeling that they would have problems with their insurance company should anything happen to Peterson or any of the extras if he slipped and fell. Peterson told Friedkin just before the take that he was going to do it anyway. The airport officials were not happy and politely requested the film crew go film somewhere else. When the production needed a prison-like location for some scenes, Friedkin was able to shoot those scenes at the San Luis Obispo Penitentiary and he used real prison inmates as extras in those scenes. Now, if you've seen the film, you probably know which scene I'm going to talk about here. It is the scene of the movie, the car chase. Now, I'm presuming if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably already seen the movie and are a fan of it. If you haven't yet seen it, go ahead and stop here now and watch it, because I'm about to get into some heavy details about a pivotal sequence. It's not available for streaming as of October 2020, but I was able to borrow a copy of the DVD from my local library. Maybe you still have a video store in your neighborhood that has a copy. Okay, so Chance and Vukovic, posing as bankers from Palm Springs, have made contact with Masters, who is suspicious of these two oafish douchebags, and demands $30,000 in front money, which is three times the limit the Secret Service has for operations like this. Desperate to get masters, Chance talks Vukovic into kidnapping and robbing a courier arriving at Union Station from San Francisco with $50,000 to purchase stolen diamonds. The partners are able to pull off the first part, but the courier is shot and killed by a group tailing them who are trying to shoot Chance. The partners are able to get the money off the dead body, and over the course of the next eight minutes, the most exciting car chase sequence since, well, the French Connection, unfolds on screen. In fact, much of the chase feels like Friedkin is trying to outdo his ghosts, showing how much more exciting he can make this sequence over its original counterpart over 14 years. And he really does succeed. Much of the success comes from the second unit DP, Robert Yeoman, who took over this part of the shoot from Robbie Muller because Muller had no idea how to shoot this sequence. Friedkin would hire Yeoman as his cinematographer on his next film, Rampage, out of gratitude for how well the final sequence came out. Now, if the car chase sequence makes you panicky, like it does Vukovic in the backseat of the car during the chase, good. It's designed that way. In fact, it would be the last major sequence filmed for the movie, because if anything would have happened to Peterson or Pankow during the filming of the sequence, 
at least the rest of the movie would have already been completed. The most memorable part of the chase sequence is when Chance tries to escape the bad guys chasing and shooting at them by going the wrong way on a freeway. The sequence was supposed to be filmed over the course of three weekends on the Terminal Island Freeway in Wilmington, California, just west of Long Beach. The freeway would be closed for four hours at a time, with Peterson doing his own stunt driving and Pencow really freaking out in the back seat. But three weekends turned into six weekends, and Friedkin would exceed his budget by nearly a million dollars. However, there is no chase sequence in Petovich's book. Friedkin added it to the screenplay in part because of something that happened to him in 1963 when he had fallen asleep while driving home from a wedding in Chicago and had woken up on the wrong side of the freeway with oncoming traffic coming straight for him. Friedkin had been trying to use something like that in a movie for more than 20 years, and this movie could provide the perfect, pun not intended, vehicle for such a sequence. A known perfectionist for realism, Friedkin wanted the sequence of counterfeiting to be as authentic as possible, so he hired a couple of actual counterfeit artists as technical consultants. In fact, in any shot that didn't specifically show Willem Dafoe, it would be one of those consultants doing that work. The production would end up creating more than $1 million in funny money during the making of the film, with three deliberate, incorrect details, such as using non-existent district reserve seals and letters like X and Z, so that the bills would be easily identified as fake. Despite the filmmaking team burning the money for a shot, some of that funny money actually got out into the world. For example, the son of one of the crew members tried to use some of the prop money to buy candy at a local store and was immediately caught. FBI agents from D.C. paid a visit to the set and spoke with a number of the crew, including Friedkin, who showed them a work print of what had been assembled so far and even offered to show the film to the Secretary of the Treasury, Donald Regan, and take out anything that may have been considered a danger to national security. Regan never took Friedkin up on his offer, but the Treasury did say that they'd still see the fake bills from the movie show up for years after. Production would end in early 1985, with Friedkin undecided on the ending. In the screenplay, one of the agents was intended to die, but when it came to time to shoot the sequence, he ended up letting the other one die and changing the final sequences to reflect that change. The executives at MGM were none too pleased with that churn of event, so Friedkin would bring back Peterson and Pankow to shoot a new ending where both agents survive but are sent to Alaska as punishment for their actions. That's the ending the first test audience saw, and until it was included as a bonus feature on the DVD, they would be the only ones who saw that particular ending. One thing Friedkin was certain about was who was going to do the music for the film. A fan of their 1984 album Points on the Curve, Friedkin had given the script to Wang Chung band members Nick Feldman and Jack Hughes before he had started shooting the film, 
and had but one request for the band. Please, no song called To Live and Die in L.A. But Feldman and Hughes couldn't help it. The song came very quickly to them, and when they played it for Friedkin, he not only acquiesced, he would direct and appear in the accompanying music video, which was made to look like a behind-the-scenes video of the making of the song, with the band writing and recording the song as they watched scenes from the movie with the director. Friedkin would use two songs from Points on the Curve, Wait, and their top 20 hit Dance Hall Days, and the band would produce three new songs and four themes that would reoccur throughout the film. As spring turned to summer, Friedkin would start making some hard choices putting the film together. Future Buffy the Vampire Slayer star Christy Swanson played the daughter of Dean Sockwell's character, who had a short scene with Willem Dafoe. It would have been her first film appearance had Friedkin not cut the scene. She would make her debut three months later as the Duquette at the end of Pretty in Pink. One scene Friedkin would regret cutting was a scene just before the final showdown with Masters, when Vukovic frantically tries to reunite with his ex-wife. By the end of summer, the film was locked and MGM would set a November 1st release date. The film would open on 1,135 screens and come in second place with $3.55 million, just behind Canon Films' Death Wish 3, but ahead of New Line's A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, both which also opened the same weekend. The film would play nine weeks in theaters, grossing a total of $17.3 million. Not massively successful, but enough to be profitable before ancillaries like VHS and cable. The album would peak at number 85 on the Billboard 200 album chart, while the title song would hit 41 on the top 100 singles chart. William L. Peterson would go on to Michael Mann's Manhunter, which should have been a hit and made him a star, but it really wouldn't be until he played Gil Grissom on CSI in 2000 when he would actually become famous. John Pankow mostly worked on stage after the movie, but he did find some fame on his own as the cousin of Paul Reiser's character on Mad About You. Willem Dafoe? Well, he's a damn national treasure. You know that. The same with John Turturro. Deborah Feuer would divorce Mickey Rourke in 1989, and after a few more roles, mostly in episodic television, would retire from acting in 2000 to raise her child with new husband, camera operator Scott Fuller. Darlan Flugel continued to act for another decade. Then, she became a professor at the University of Central Florida for several years in the early 2000s. She sadly passed away from Alzheimer's in 2017. William Friedkin would start up his next film almost as soon as he was done with To Live and Die in L.A. Rampage would star Michael Bean, his first film after becoming a bona fide action hero, in James Cameron's Aliens, and Alex MacArthur, an up-and-coming actor 
who at the time was best known for playing Madonna's boyfriend in her Papa Don't Preach video. MacArthur plays Charles Reese, a recently captured serial killer who killed to drink the blood of his victims as a result of paranoid delusions. And Bean was Anthony Frazier, the prosecutor, who was trying to prove Reese was not insane and deserved to be put on death row. With an evocative score by the great Ennio Morricone, the only time these two masters would work together, Rampage would make its world premiere at the Boston Film Festival in September 1987 and then sit on the proverbial shelf for five years, thanks to the bankruptcy of Dino De Laurentiis' eponymous movie studio, which we covered more in depth in our 21st episode. Friedkin would tinker with the movie for years, re-editing the film and even changing the ending before Harvey Weinstein would purchase the movie rights in 1991 and finally release the film into theaters through his Miramax Pictures in October 1992, after Friedkin had already filmed and released the supernatural horror film The Guardian in 1990. The $7.5 million Rampage would only open in 172 theaters and gross just under $800,000 after 10 weeks. Friedkin would continue his slow slide into mediocrity with the basketball drama Blue Chips in 1994, the erotic thriller Jade in 1995, and the military legal drama Rules of Engagement in 2000, followed then by The Hunted, Bug, and Killer Joe. To Live and Die in L.A. would be the last film he would make that would make any kind of profit, although Bug would come close in 2006. I saw To Live and Die in L.A. a couple of times in theaters, including once on opening night, and I purchased it on VHS soon after it was released in early 1986. I must have watched it 50 times over the next dozen years, but I switched over to DVD in 1998, and it wouldn't get released on that format until 2003, so it had been over 20 years since I'd last watched it. Until this week. As a drama, it's decent, but there are some unfortunate moments due to changes in society over the ensuing 35 years. But when it kicks into action mode, it's still fantastic and engaging and thrilling. Wang Chung's score and songs are still bangers, and side two of that album, the four instrumental themes, they were my go-to music when I would be driving home in the middle of the night from my theater. And hopefully, MGM will see fit to release the movie to streaming services in the near future. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. 
You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.